0: Hey, and welcome to the Zero Ambitions podcast. This week we've got Gavin Smart and Callum Homchuk from the Chartered Institute of Housing, or the CIH. But Gavin's the Chief Exec and Callum's the Director in Scotland for the Chartered Institute of Housing. It's a really interesting listen that covers a range of housing policy strands and gives you an idea of the things that the CIH are involved with on a day-to-day basis. We talk about a range of subjects within the housing from new build to retrofit, as you'd expect, from private to social housing and everything in between. I hope you enjoy it, we certainly did. In fact, we enjoyed the chat so much that we've managed to record enough for two episodes. So this is the first that we'll put out on Tuesday the 20th with the second out on Thursday the 22nd. There's a massive amount going on over the next couple of weeks. Um, we've got the UN Center of Excellence meeting in Pittsburgh this week. And I know some people that are heading over there. We've got the AECB conference on the 30th of September at, at in Night in Hereford. And we've also got the best festival On the 25th of October which Sarah will be hosting uh, with guests such as Chris Stark I met him once very impressive anyway as always join the ECB it's fantastic value for money and we're planning a lot of things over the autumn subscribe to Passive House Plus magazine if you can and if you're involved in housing have a think about joining the CIH we couldn't have better representatives than Gavin and Kelvin for the sector they really are excellent and the work they do is invaluable Anyway, I hope you enjoy the listen. It was myself and Dan and Alex from UX and Jeff from Passive House Magazine. Sarah was busy someplace else, but we had a great time. Really enjoyed it. Hope you do too.
1: All right, so we're here today with Gavin Smart, CEO of the Chartered Institute of Housing. Uh Callum Homchuk, uh former guest. Lovely to see you again. Uh yep. Duncan Smith, uh, the redoubtable Jeff Colley, uh, and Alex Blondin. Uh Sarah couldn't join us today. She's stuck on a train. Um, yeah, we're here to talk about housing. And we've got two of the best-placed people to talk about it from a, a UK perspective, uh, since you guys are figureheads of the the largest UK professional body for the industry across private and social. That's right, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, for anyone who might not have heard of you, or both of you, I mean, what do you guys do? Um,
2: Uh, I'll give you the elevator pitch explanation. So the elevator pitch explanation is that uh, CIH is the Chartered Institute of Housing, which is the professional body for people who work across the whole of housing in the UK and beyond, because we've got an international membership as well. Uh, And in short, we exist... To do three things. So, we exist uh, for our members to provide them with the help, support, advice, guidance, services they need to do their jobs really well. Uh, Second, like all professional bodies, we exist to train, educate, and qualify uh, the the, the housing profession. Uh, And the third thing which we do, which is slightly unusual in the professional body sector, is that we uh, say we have a role as the public voice of housing, and that refers to the fact that we do quite a lot of policy and influencing work with government. Uh, And an interesting wrinkle in that is that because we have a royal charter, we're actually required to act in the public interest, so we don't represent just the interests of our members. The key defining judgment for us is what's in the public interest. So we do those three things, members, training and education, uh, policy and the public interest.
1: Oh, so given what we were just discussing about wealth accrual in housing, <laughs> that that puts you in a potentially challenging position. <laughs> it
2: does. It does. Yeah. Sometimes our job is uh, helping government to do the things that they want to do. And sometimes our job is um, helping government to understand they might want to change their mind or to do things differently. I don't know if Callum wants to, to add to yeah. my description. What did I miss, Callum?
3: Nothing missed. just to add, So Dan picked it up a little bit about that that. Point that we represent the whole sector. So I think some other kind of representative bodies, trade bodies focus on one part of the sector that's a legitimate interest where we try to consider the housing sector and its totality. And, and that's the important bit about how, what the unintended consequences, the changes to the PRS to the social sector, changes the social sector to owner occupation, and that is that is the challenge. Uh, but that's an important one, because actually, we, we often talk about housing in silos in isolation, and isolation, unless you look at, at as broadly as possible, we're going to miss actually the kind of the impact some decisions will have.
4: Yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. Uh, I just, I wonder. Yeah, I just pick up on the point that Dan was was speaking upon. If if you've got a charter that requires you to have a public interest, which public or which part of the public? Uh, because of <laughs> course, there's, there's there's very different interests, and I think of, I think of in a country that I don't know what the percentages are for home ownership in the UK. Um, it's high, right? Um, yeah. but um. I'm minded of, you know, uh, the kind of hand wringing that people who own homes do when they see uh, the affordability problems that people have in terms of getting access to to, to buy homes or, or or even or even rent in in some cases, you know. And I'm thinking. Uh, Oh yeah, you know um, it's terrible, isn't it? Uh, and and thinking that, thinking that, and saying that, but all the while watching the value of their asset increasing. <laughs> Did you really think us? You know,
2: no, it's, it, it's a fair point. Um, so we we have a sort of um, slightly kind of folksy way of thinking about this, which I'll, I'll try to dress up in more kind of policy wonky clothes. So the sort of folksy way we have of thinking about it is, to, is that on balance, what we are trying to do in our policy work is help governments and the public in the country uh, move from a situation where, housing probably only works for some of the people some of the time towards a situation where it works for more people more of the time. And ideally, all of the people all of the time, although that last target is probably yeah, kind of illusory. Uh, dressed up in more formal clothes, it, I, I guess you could sort of, you could describe that as kind of trying to get towards a more kind of Pareto efficient uh, uh, system, you know, where we're doing the best we can t- uh, with the resources and, and the policies available uh, to create a system, that works best for the country as a whole. Uh, and you're right, there are always trade-offs in 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 those kind of policy decisions. Um, and how we try to get to that judgment is to use the evidence. We try, we, we say we try to be evidence-based. So we will look at policies or problems on their merits and say, you know, on balance, is this more or less likely to take us towards that target of creating a housing system that works uh, for everyone. Um, now that's not an exact science. You know, there's a bit of there's a bit of analysis in there. There's a bit of guesswork. There's a bit of instinct, a bit of gut. Uh, but on average, that's what that's what we're trying to do. Um, and it means that occasionally we will support some things that people might think are counterintuitive. Uh, on other occasions, we might find ourselves in a very painful conversation with 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 politicians or governments, having to tell them that the thing that they like the most is precisely the thing they should not be doing. Uh, but our job is to speak. Truth to power and to the public.
1: Yeah, uh, an easy, easy task. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, it's good to have you on as well, Callum, because you, uh, well, you represent Scotland. Uh, like, so there is a there's a dissonance built into it because of like the well, devolution has affected the housing market. So, like, uh, for our listeners who were paying attention, uh, we released those bonus episodes that we recorded with you guys at the Festival of Housing back in May. And uh they're worth a listen. Uh they're really interesting. We had Gavin guest in on the the first one, uh, which was about the right to a home, uh, legal issues and social issues surrounding that. And then the second one was I mean, it was a lot more interesting than I anticipated, because Gavin chose the the subjects for us to attend, but it was the private rental sector. Uh so you'd got representatives from all the four regions to describe their appreciation of the situation. Uh and I just I mean, you know proper dom, obviously, but I just hadn't thought about it in those terms, about how there are competing interests, there are different rules, regulations, policy drivers, policy decisions, demands out of the economies and out of the people, which must make your lives more difficult, I mean, at least more
3: interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, so before we started recording, we were talking there a little about the regard that housing has as a, a public policy issue. I think one thing that we benefit from Scotland is you know we, we we don't have a an international portfolio, we don't have foreign secretary, we don't have a kind chancellor portfolio. So actually a lot of the, the big some of the big bread and butter things are NHS, their education and their housing. And actually I think that's why actually we've been quite fortunate in Scotland since the start of the evolution. You've had a lot of stability in housing, for a lot of stability in housing ministers, for a lot of stability in cross-party consensus on housing policy, and actually in how it's delivered. And I think that has probably led to you know progressive change over that time. Now there is still there's still a lot of controversy. So I think we're seeing this now in Scotland with a proposed changes to the renting sector. And you you've saw a, a pushback from private landlords around proposals for kind of rent rent controls being introduced in Scotland. There's a there's a trail news that the First Minister today, so this will be dated by the time this is out, but First Minister today is looking at a freeze on rents. And I don't know if that's the private renting sector or the social renting sector. So there you can see the, the yeah. sector is getting more contentious. You know, and your know, Jeff's point earlier about the the size of the sec- the kind of owner occupation sector, you know, we we haven't really we haven't really thought about that in any sense. We have saw the PRS grow, we saw the social rent sector shrink. So we are potentially coming to an end of maybe that consensus era around housing in Scotland, where actually some more difficult decisions are going to be made. But that's the decision. That's the position that we all should be on. That's politicians have got to make decisions for. As Gavin was talking about the public good, and it's up to us as a professional body as a, an interested organization to find the evidence to make that case and you know i've said we represent the whole sector but you know the heart doesn't matter what country you're in the uk we're always going to say we need more affordable social housing
4: yeah, yeah. Do you get into co-housing sorry for going to go off there um uh, do, do, That's do, right. do, you get, do you get into co-housing um and uh, alternative models for for housing delivery at all because it feels to me and i look at um I was really interested a few years ago, Alistair Parvin from the WikiHouse Foundation wrote a really interesting piece about the need to create an alternative housing market, a parallel housing market that runs that, that's not viewed as a threat uh, by the owner occupiers, for instance, um, you know, something that, that kind of daily mail reading why are these people getting something for free kind of anger you know um uh, where you you find a way of, of providing quality housing for people whereby um, they can't you know uh, it can't be like right to buy where people get something very cheap and then then a few years down the line they they they, they flip it and uh, and and you know and, and cream the profits for themselves you know where where you have quality housing but you uh, but but there's a kind of a almost a permanent stock available for that you know I mean um, social uh,
1: housing. Like well, social, social housing, housing s- was originally intended.
4: Yes, absolutely. That's part of it, too. But I'm talking about, I mean, Alistair Department's ideas. We should try and get them on, actually, at the stage. He talked about, you know, identifying the elements that, that are causing house, the, the, the constituent parts for house prices, the developer's profit margin, the land costs and so on. Uh, strip the land costs out of it. Strip the developers, Go co-housing to to get the developer out of it. You know, turn the turn the the, the building occupants effectively, or the or, or an organisation into the into the developer. Take um, uh, get the local authority to provide the land, but and the land stays. You know, uh, um, whether somebody sells the house, they, they don't sell the land effectively that it sits on. You know, uh, stuff like that, um, which just looks very promising.
2: Yes. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. Yes, we do. I mean, the kind of more. Um, detailed answer. Well, I guess kind of a couple of things to say. So, first of all, just pick up on what Cannon was saying. I think I think he's right. What's been interesting in certainly Scotland and Wales since the, since almost the inception of devolution is there's been a consistency of agreement across the sector and government and political parties about the aims and ambitions that we're seeking to achieve. And I think that's that's led. Probably to great progress in Scotland and Wales than maybe in England where it's a bit more contentious. Northern Ireland, um, uh, as you'll know, Jeff, is always a, a kind of uh, slight, uh kind of a country apart because the situation there is more complex, although uh, there has been some consistency uh certainly in terms of uh the social housing sector. In, in terms of di- um kind of different delivery mechanisms, the, the the answer is yes. So we've been involved, not not centrally, but we've been supportive of and been involved around the margins of things like community land trusts which which operate pretty much exactly the way you describe where they try to make sure that a proportion of the value is captured in perpetuity usually the land part of the value so that it can be recycled uh, again and again um then actually on a smaller scale i think in england and possibly in wales too um we've been We've been quite supportive of uh and involved in promoting what are called rural exception sites so this is a kind of planning designation which can be uh made available so that uh, landowners who want to um donate some land so that it can be used for kind of affordable housing or for to help house the local community can, are enabled to put in place a kind of long-term restricted covenants i mean that the, those the homes built on the land can continue to be used for for that purpose. Um, But in a a very sort of um, a sort of gentle middle class uh, sort of policy uh, professional body kind of a way, we're a bit sort of Malcolm X about it, you know, it's kind of by any means necessary, right? So you need, you need the big, large scale uh, interventions. We know that a massive part of what happens in, in housing overall is driven by what happens in the housing association sector, the council sector, and with the private developers. You've got to play with the major players and you've got to try to make that work, but you need to be looking at all the options. And there are, you know, we, we've been involved in work on, on, a little bit of work on with, with the, the co-housing association in, in Northern Ireland, community land trusts, cooperatives, uh, tenant management organisations, you know, it. It, it takes the whole thing and more to get to where yeah. we need to get to and you get but your right, dirty
4: it's... with the house builders
2: too you've got to work with the house builders and yeah. and part of working with the house builders um actually is about i i have to challenge myself as kind of younger policy book. i used to get very cross about some things the house builders did until i sort of re-remembered you know Aesop's fable about you know, the other fox and the chicken crossing the river and boat, you know halfway across the fox starts to eat the chicken and chicken says what are you doing and the fox is like kind of what's up it's in my nature right? so quite a lot of what house builders do is not for badness necessarily it reflects the model that they operate in the expectations and in fact the you know, the needs that they have in order to operate so actually to get to Decent discussions and decent policy mechanisms. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to understand the incentives that people are operating with, and including the kind of you know, the, the non-negotiable red line incentives that they might not want either, but which are a reality of, of the way in which their business model works. So a nice a nice example of that, and things that we might say occasionally that that, that make us a bit unpopular. I, actually, it's quite hard to find a lot of evidence that private developers land bank, uh, uh, you know, in in the way. That is reported in the media at large uh, because it's irrational. It's economically irrational and they probably wouldn't do it. Uh, If they can sell a home, they will sell a home because they need the cash to pay down the development finance that they've been using to to build out sites. So there there isn't a lot of evidence of uh, developers sitting on large numbers of unsold homes on purpose in order to inflate prices. That doesn't seem to happen. What does seem to happen is that they're pretty clued up about what they would call the absorption rate, you know, the number of sales that you can get away any given geography at a particular time. And that's slower than we might all want it to be. But they go to that speed, not the other. That's not irrational. That's just operating the model as as they're given it.
1: And and that's an issue to do with the nature of... uh uh shareholder driven businesses because the business is yeah, shareholder driven
2: businesses but also the nature of selling into the market So to, the, the nice thing you can do is it's kind of you can understand it by comparison um uh social landlords don't have to worry about absorption rate with waiting lists at the scale they are basically the as fast as you can get the homes out you can get people into the media yeah. people house and you just don't have to worry the only question is how fast can we get this done
1: well, yeah. it's uh, it's more that the, the absorption rate is about ensuring uh, an adequate return on investment for the shareholder. So it's servicing the shareholder need. And that is a legal requirement, certainly in England. Yeah. I don't know uh, if yes. there's. Yes, uh, I think I think that's
2: I think that's partially right. It, it's also just about you know, the number of buyers that, you know, step up any yeah. working day to a site, you know, with yeah. with mortgages who are ready to go. Um, it, and, yeah, you know, and it's everyone. This is kind of like. It's a niche point at one level, but it's just interesting because the more you can understand the environment within which you're operating, the the the, the restrictions under which different actors operate, yeah. the better you can better you can
1: do. But it's interesting how that has knock on effect in terms of quality. So what can you get away with? Regulations being a floor, uh, not a ceiling, but they're treated as a ceiling. Building regs across all the provinces like it's the same the world over yeah uh,
2: i i think that's a fair comment so again that's about re- recognizing incentive structures so the landlords yeah. particularly social landlords housing, so social authorities clts and others right they, they got a long-term interest in the in the buildings the homes and the places they are creating that gives them an immediate incentive to to build and invest for the longer term yeah now, the, the, the private development model does not necessarily do that um and policy wants up like me and callum would say oh, well actually, there's a risk there of market failure and that's where you need an intervention and that intervention is called regulation uh, and you need to be pretty clear about making sure that those standards and that regulation is driving uh, up the quality of homes because there's a there's a there's a risk of a missing incentive in the market and that's not to criticize it's just to be realistic about what's going on if by your very nature you're set up to sell homes and then move on to the next site yeah uh you've got a different set of incentives from a, a social yeah. landlord who's saying i'm going to build these homes and i'm going to they're still going to be we're going to be managing them in 50 years 100 years we need them to really last the
1: course no um it what's really bothering me at the moment so to get on to to our perennial obsession of demand reduction and retrofitting is like the system feels wholly inadequate to address the the crisis which is engulfing us you know it's no longer an elephant in the room it's an elephant you're saving to burn in the winter because you're not going to be able to afford your heating like it's it's a really parlous state and you're crawling into the carcass of the elephant for heat yeah. <laughs> like han solo yeah <laughs> Oh man, it's, yeah, it's appalling. And uh, like, it was really interesting, the PRS conversation that we had, we got on to manage to get them onto the retrofit subject. And no one knows what to do. Everyone's looking elsewhere for uh, direction and money to do it Mm. because it's not cheap. And I was talking with a, uh, a lender the other week about managing the... Asset values, like long-term thinking about it and how currently there are no drivers to make energy efficiency a factor in contemplating the, the the long-term value of a property. Yet, we know just from existing that that is going to become a factor. Like if energy prices continue to rise, which they will until we decarbonize the grid and switch to renewables, uh, I mean, even then, I mean, it's still going to be dear. Like. I mean, I've no answers here apart from more conversations. But I mean, I'm curious as to... Oh, Duncan, you're wanting to say something. Sorry.
0: Well, yeah, I think what, what's... I mean, it's really interesting, Gavin. Um, I hadn't thought of the way you framed, um, you know, how we... Buy or how how consumers buy buy homes and and how the difference between the social landlord um and private developers and I've, I've I've worked in both I've, I've worked in private development for a number of big companies and and I've worked in social landlords but it, there is a kind of connection because going back to the point that we like to talk about the most of which is retrofit of course um one of the things that we that we are concerned about is the market approach for the delivery of energy efficiency services and how rather than how I, th- I th- To try and maybe articulate where I think we all feel here, and, you know, people listening to this on audio can't hear everyone's head, can't see everyone's heads nodding, but how do you engage the market so the market stays connected and stays involved in the decisions that you make? Because that's when you get efficiencies, and I guess that's what you're saying the market can't do from a new build perspective, because that's essentially what social landlords do. But if we are buying, consuming retrofit products, The owners can't all be on the consumer to buy those and hope they all work. How do you actually engage the market in a way where the market's responsible for the efficiencies of that service long term? That's a a question because I think if we don't answer that or if we don't start to talk about how energy efficiency is delivered and maintained, we'll be back here in three, four, five years' time talking about the same thing. Lots of failures, lots of stuff that kind of did and didn't work.
2: Right. You, that's a really good question. You, you, you're right. I mean, I, I, so the slightly sort of academic answer to that question is that government's got a range of policy levers available to it, uh, and you're probably going to need to use the full range uh, of policy levers because, because at times, what government does with those policy levers is it tries to send different set of signals to the market than than would be there otherwise, or in, in kind of posh the kind of economist type terms. So what government is trying to do sometimes with these kind of interventions is deal with externalities, which are things that are not properly kind of cost into the price. So um, we we know that we want, we need to see reductions in carbon emissions, but the price of homes currently doesn't actually you know, it is it, not adequately priced in that in we yeah, basically new kitchens, new bathrooms, double glazing and they're the only things that and conservatories that you can pretty much demonstrate, have an effect on house prices. Most of the other quite complicated and very expensive stuff that we know we need to do for another reason, currently not adequately captured in, in, in house prices. Uh, one of the very few things to come out of the energy crisis, cost-living of crisis, might be that that starts to change, but you know, markets are slow to turn. So then, then you need to think about, so what tools have we got at our disposal? And, you know, and government has um, incentives in, in terms of grants, uh, in terms of more favourable tax treatments, it it has a kind of legal compulsion, it, it has regulation, and effectively it's also got got sanctions because you can see from time to time government uses, for instance, the, the use of tax allowances or you know, um, treatment in a tax regime to deliver certain, or to try to nudge or push towards certain kinds of outcomes. And, and I think in terms of we're going to need all of those so we, we we need to kind of surf the waves as they arrive uh and yeah. without a doubt you know the, the the cost of living crisis the energy crisis uh, has sparked an interest in oh dear my home is very inefficient um how on earth am I going to heat it what can I do is it now worth me looking again uh so we need to pay attention to that but but government is going to have to support households for whom that's That's just a bridge too far. It's going to have to work with industry to think about innovative mechanisms to deliver that and finance that. It's going to have to use uh, regulation. It's going to have to use, um, I need to be very careful with my language, carefully selected kind of negative incentives. um, Yeah. Yeah. I think all of those things to to gradually shift. The other thing to say is um, it's it's not entirely fair, but I think it's a role – that the sector accepts, the social housing sector knows and understands that housing associations are the biggest bulk landlords in the country. And because they clearly have social purpose as well, they accept that they will need to play a kind of um, a leading role, you know, a, a kind of a learning role. in in being amongst the first to gear up and to get and to understand what retrofit needs to look like and I think they're up for that they're up for that challenge um the kind of wrinkle in that challenge is of course what we have to avoid doing at all costs is looking as if we're experimenting on tenants and residents who are on the lowest incomes now getting that balance right is incredibly difficult but there is um I think the sector understands and accepts that there's a kind of leadership role here and there's a developmental role that the landlords at home own homes at that, that scale can play so, so that's a very yeah. long rambling answer but yeah it's going to need all of those things at all
1: well, it's a big long I know, as well that, rambling, I mean, so, sorry just, Josh,
0: just go before ahead. you think Callum, Callum and, and Alex were looking to come in all
3: right sorry love go. so I, I think I don't disagree with anything you're saying there at all guy you know I think part of it, Duncan the premise of your question is we are at such a uh, uncertain bit of kind of the market when it comes to retrofit, aren't right? So you know, Gavin's right. You know, we have got confidence yeah. in things like boilers or conservatories to the glazing because they're they're known to us all. We know what we're asking yeah. for when we get them, so we can we can sort of work out what the cost is. We know how effective they'll be. We have no idea the heating systems that each each home that we're all in currently right now. Right, so we don't know what the heating system will be in five years and or what it would be in 10 years. And I think there's that. We're at a pretty exciting time, but a pretty uncertain time. And I think until we have that market confidence and we're more clear about the reliability and the cost of these solutions, I don't think we're going to have, we won't, we won't get there, Duncan, by doing. But I think yeah. Gavin's other point that he touched on about kind of negative um, incentive requirements. I think that's, you know, we're already, you know, carefully selected. Carefully yeah. selected. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um. But, you know, you do. We are going to move to you. Know, we're going to have energy requirements on homes in Scotland across different uh, tenures, and your the likelihood is you'll be probably unable to dispose of that property until it meets its, it's a requirement. We're going to have you know, and it's been a long. Time coming, we're still there. Around kind of common uh, tenements in Scotland, about tenemental repairs, about people putting money in a shared fund, around actually there's certain responsibilities now, perhaps, on owner occupiers in a way that we haven't had that culture of before. Since yeah. in the UK, and I think that's part of it. So suddenly, people recognise that you need to invest in a home, not just from a, an aesthetic uh, or a kind of a comfort approach, but actually mm-hmm. as a responsibility. Now, that is difficult because that's expensive, and actually, how we unpack the the shared responsibility of meeting these costs, how people pay that over time, yeah. is really thorny. But I think as we get that technological development, as we as a society, as a world recognise our yeah. responsibilities towards that, I think you're, you'll start to see um, the private sector, I mean, owner-occupation and everybody, maybe meet some of those concerns that the social sector are already delivering on and that kind of placemaking and maintaining your property and not wait until it yeah. collapses until we actually try to fix it. Uh, just
0: just before let, just before Alex comes in, I, I think that's really interesting because one of the things I've noticed in the last, even in the last 24 months is how the 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 ticket the, the big ticket items in a house whether it's for purchase or for rent where kitchens and bathrooms and the aesthetics inside people are much more tuned in now to the performance you know the language that people are using just you know and wider family circles is much more informed about the performance a good example Dan I'm not sure if I told you this spoke to somebody last week their mortgage which is a, a, a sort of low mortgage you know, £30,000, £35,000 houses we're talking about here, their energy bills are actually now more, much more significant um, than actually what their mortgage payments are. It's, Jesus, it's, it's not, not, I, I, not, I don't want to say common, but it's certainly becoming more common in certain areas of Glasgow.
1: Well, I was at a conference the other week. Sorry, Alex. Like, what was interesting, I was talking to a surveyor, uh, Daryl, if you're listening, Aya, um, what we were talking about with regard to how the energy crisis is affecting people he was referring to conversations he was having with his mates, uh, some of whom had come up and grown very wealthy, and they were all sitting around the same table, nursing pints in the pub, with the same questions like, "How am I going to pay my energy bill this winter? How is it going to affect me?" Albeit one of them might have been considerate in terms of his stables, I don't know, but <laughs> everyone is still feeling the pinch in a similar manner, and it is a this is a galvanizing shock doctrine style opportunity to accelerate change anyway alex go ahead
5: but if, yeah for me it was just more of an observation because we're talking about retrofits and we know there are a lot of issues because there are actually people living in them and so there's a lot of impact you know be it's uh, emotional or just even <laughs> operational of, of of managing around people living in there so what i'm wondering is The new build sector surely should be also uh, how should have a responsibility in sort of leading the way as well because a lot of the new builds and again I'm using an example of a friend of mine who's just literally moved into their new build home uh six months ago uh i gave her thanks to obviously what we're doing on the podcast i was able to give her lots of questions to ask the developer around the energy efficiency of her home she got literally zero responses it was she was ignored completely ignored no one even bothered to say oh well you might have this sort of insulation or you have an insulation. don't worry you know nothing like that and it seems to me though that a new builder you've got a blank canvas so why Why is the new build sector not being more actively pushed to go, right, we are now building, you know, maybe not passive homes, Jeff, but at least something much, much, much closer than that. Whereas I'm getting the impression as sort of on behalf of my friend who just bought that she is just getting the same basic stuff with, you know, anything they can get away with uh, rather than having a house that is genuinely uh, an energy efficient home. Yes, it has um, solar panels on the PV on the the roofs and everything like that. But I have absolutely no idea if it's actually energy efficient or not, because it doesn't, it's not because there's PV on the roof that it's en- actually energy efficient. And that's sort of the uh, nowadays we're like, oh yes, we put panels up there, so it must be energy efficient. But that's not true. So why isn't the the why isn't the new build sector, as it were, why is it not leading the way as well?
3: I mean, Alex, I can from a Scottish perspective, and I can only speak from a Scottish perspective, so th- we are seeing new requirements come in place. So from 2024, um you know, new buildings that are consented, they're supposed to have uh, zero carbon heating systems. So that's, I mean, that will, and that's basically tomorrow. I mean, 2024 is basically tomorrow. I think what we will, I think we will ultimately see a little bit of first incentives. I think you may see in the kind of short term after that, people perhaps pull back from new builds because there was an uncertainty around that. I think you may see an existing stock market, but ultimately we will be replenishing and having to refresh our stock and. And that will be the norm. So I think we are we are seeing that. And I, I can't speak for the rest of the UK, um, and I, I, you know, obviously I can't speak to how uh, effective that will be. But that uh, there is that kind of national leadership, and I think that's I think it was well communicated to the sector. Whether that's awareness is, exists amongst the public, I'm not certain. But I think that is that's exactly the type of approach that we, we should be taking. So you know, you know, the, the entire housing system is responding to the need.
1: Mm. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: I was just going to say, um,
4: the, the, on, I've said this before, but with regard to new build, uh, I wonder whether whether this is something, uh, Gavin and Callum, that, that you've encountered. Um, our view when, when we were lobbying many years ago for, for energy performance uh, levels to be higher, those planning conditions in certain parts of, of Ireland, and then for building regulations to be tightened, uh, was that you just, if you require it, if you make it a condition of either a planning condition or building regulations, ideally, um, then, uh, then 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 effectively it's, it becomes a tax on land. You uh, you just you know it depends on on how high land prices are to begin with, I suppose. But the point is that if if it's a cost that if the developer knows they're going to have to to spend this extra on, on construction to meet the higher performance standards, um, then they have to bid less for the land. Um, unless they're convinced that people will pay a premium for the homes and will be able to pay a premium for the homes, depending on on the the, the borrowing restrictions and so on, um, uh, you'll end up. It was an, it was a property economist, um, uh, Tom Dunn, uh, Professor Tom Dunn, who who uh, who put this argument forward for us, and it was very very kind of important, important And if you don't have that, the point is then that any developer who's trying to to do better than the bare minimum, um, with new build, for instance. Um, uh, they're just going to get outbid by somebody else who's who's willing to kind of pay more for the land. Basically, is that do you think there's
2: something so that, to that? That's really no. I think that's really interesting, Jeff. There's, there's 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 so much in in this. So I suppose just two or three things. To say. So so first up, just coming back to the point that that that, that Alex made. Um, uh, this is something that CIH talks about quite a lot, and it's a source of enormous frustration to us that we are building homes now that we will need to retrofit, and that is bonkers. Exactly. Uh, and in a kind of UK story English context, you know, the Cameron and Osborne government started out with a set of ambitions to get to co-faceted homes, you know, got kind of high-performing zero carbon by I think 2016 originally, and then they canned it. Uh, you know, and that was. Well, it didn't look like a good decision at the time to those involved. It looks like an increasingly bad decision now because we've got probably getting on for a million homes that were built in that period. Uh, you know, they're not... We're going to need to go back and retrofit them again. Um, I, I I suspect in kind of formal economic terms, that analysis, Jeff, is is right. If you increase the costs of production, it, it reduces the ability of... Um, uh, of developers to pay more for a site. So actually, you you see that played out in the social housing sector, where often um, uh, social landlords will lose out bidding for a site to private developers, because private developers can go further. And actually, you also see it's one of the factors that has explained the growth of the private rental sector across the whole of the UK, but particularly in England, uh, because... Uh, private landlords continue to be able to access interest-only mortgages, and people purchasing for residential purposes don't. Uh, so that means that one party's mortgage costs are lower than the other, so one lot can, can bid higher. So you see the same kind of behaviour, and um, yeah, a lot of that in formal economic terms does get, essentially, uh, the, any value over and above the intrinsic value of the property is, is regarded as land value. Uh, so so I think, yeah, formally, you're probably right. It would be it could be conceived as a tax on land value. Um, uh, if you if you don't have that kind of mechanism in place i think you're also right that you, the only way for developers to build to a higher standards is to hope they can sell it as a kind of premium product and that's probably a niche market i think there, you know there are some people who are willing to pay more on extra and have got the means to do it but in the you know in the in the mass market that that doesn't work without creating a regulatory floor that says this is now the the requirement i guess there's kind of two further things to say and they're both quite they could both lead us down all sorts of avenues, so I'll try and keep it tight. So the, the first which is one of my favourite uh, quotes is, I think Wittgenstein went to live with Mr and Mrs Bertrand Russell when he became a lecturer in Cambridge, and Mrs Russell asked him, what would you like for dinner? And he replied, anything as long as it's the same, because he didn't want to spend time thinking. Now, actually, developers say to planners and policymakers all the time, just tell us what the rules are, but don't keep changing them. So actually, I don't think the industry would necessarily argue against the kind of rules that you're uh suggesting but what they would say is please do them once please make sure you're happy with them and then please don't keep changing them because that creates a kind of hiatus in the market um the the final point and this is probably a whole other podcast isn't it in its own right and i'm not the right person to talk about it (laughs) but actually that conception of land value um and also uh I think it's the before, is it? Or maybe even earlier, Land Value Compensation Act in the UK, which allows um for kind of hope value to, it allows for people who are on agricultural land to retain the profit they can make in selling land somebody's going to build it for development, so they they, they gain the value uplift, and none of that value uplift occur, uh, accrues to the state, which gave the permission that made that possible. There are quite a lot of people probably me included and might argue that that's a mechanism that has been tremendously unhelpful and needs to be, needs to be undone. Because actually, although the economists would say that that was a that tax on land value, uh, people like me or less charitable say, well, you're just about to cash in big time because you've turned this agricultural land into into land for housing development. You know, if the state takes a chunk of that away, you know, I wouldn't cry in your beer too much because the value uplift is still absolutely enormous, mm-hmm. and it, and it's one of the problems in 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 our kind of housing economics. But like I said, that's that's probably a whole new podcast, and you want
1: people far more cleverer than me to talk about that part of it. Well, I think it's it's a really, I mean, it's an interesting expansion to the debate because. Often we get stuck in the, the the granular elements without, you know, we touch on the sort of macro politics, but albeit in a almost facetious and scathing manner, rather than getting into the, the, the nuts and bolts of it, because we're absolutely not equipped to do so, and you two are.
0: Hey, that was the first of a two-parter from Gavin and Callum at the CIH. I hope you enjoyed it um, the second part comes out on thursday the 22nd so look in then thanks a lot